In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Between the Lines. On this podcast, you will hear about and from lesser-known Canadian authors and writers who, for whatever reason, have remained under the radar of traditional publishers and publishing houses. You will also hear from editors, literary agents, and publishers in the hopes of giving us all a better understanding of how it all works together. If it has something to do with writing or the writing process, you are going to hear a discussion about it here. I'm your host, Randy Lacey. I'm encouraging you to grab your bevy of choice, get comfy, and get ready to go between the lines. People come into writing in several different ways. For some, it was a teacher at school handing out a writing assignment, while for others, it may have been by reading and wondering if they might be able to write. Every writer has started their writing journey on a different path. Each writer's journey will be different, yet similar. But one thing all writers have in common is a different destination. Welcome to this episode of Between the Lines. There will be a slight departure from what you have come to be familiar with, rather than an author or a writer. Although my next guest has worn this hat, he will be wearing a different hat for the purpose of this interview. With that being said, please allow me to introduce and welcome Neil Aiken to the podcast. Hello, Neil. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Randy. For the benefit of those listening, would you please give a brief bio about yourself? Sure. I'm Neil Aiken. I'm a well, I'm a writer, but I'm also the, the editor of Boxcar Poetry Review, or was the editor for the last 15 years. We recently closed our doors. I've also worked as the, as the contributing editor over translation for Poetry East-West and have served in various editorial capacities for other magazines and journals. I also work as a freelance editor and manuscript consultant, helping other people bring their books and their manuscripts to completion. That's it. I guess by, by way of trivia, I used to be a computer games programmer before I left that field and pursued uh, poetry and creative writing. Anything, any games, any big games you worked on that we would know? Sadly not, unless you're of a certain younger age. I was, uh, I used to work in educational games. So uh-huh. if you worked on anything that was related to the Jumpstart series, or played uh, Fisher Price, Imagine X, Pirate Raiders, something like that. Those are games I worked on. A little after my time. Well, thank you, Neil, for that. For this episode, Neil and I will be 
or yeah, we'll be talking about his role as an editor and uh, the expectations placed upon him, as well as his expectations from someone seeking his services. I guess the first question I'm going to have to ask you, Neil, is can you briefly explain the different types of editing and maybe give an example of each? Sure. I guess you could break down, when we use that term editing, we can actually think of editors as falling into two different camps. You have editors that work in the uh, literary journal department of things, where basically they're an editor that sees your work, your submission as it comes in, makes a decision about whether or not it's going to be published, and might offer some minor cosmetic suggestions before it gets accepted for publication. Then there's a type of working editor that is focused on manuscripts or individual pieces that you might consult as a freelance editor or manuscript editor. And within that category is a range of um, services that might be offered. You would have things like copy editing and proofreading, which is basically someone that goes through and examines the surface level of your manuscript, looking for the small errors that creep in, grammatical errors, typos, punctuation problems, or just a lack of clarity about different things that you're discussing in your article or in your story or in your poem. Usually, this is a person that focuses very much on the top level of what's happening, but doesn't get really deep into why you've made those choices, doesn't explore the content at all. Next, you'll have someone who is a developmental editor. And developmental editors are concerned with the, uh, they think about the larger questions about character and character development, plot and plot development. They think about the architecture of the story and how it's being told. They look for plot inconsistencies and holes. They look for other aspects of the of the novel or the short story collection or the or the collection of poetry for places where things aren't working quite correctly the flow is off or there's some other problem with voice or style that needs to be addressed and then hopefully they're not just commenting on those problems they're also offering you some solutions they're saying look have you considered this type of an adjustment or what if these two pieces were closer together or what would happen if we rearranged your poetry manuscript in this fashion and they'll usually offer you not just a solution but also some principles they can teach you about what to do so that you can better identify those problems in the future and then you have another category where basically they're no longer truly an editor. They're almost a co-writer. And that's if you basically say, I've got this massive amount of research and material I've already done, but I don't feel qualified or comfortable doing the actual writing. So I'm going to hand it off to someone else and say, will you effectively ghostwrite this manuscript? Take what I've gotten as the raw material and turn it into a final polished product. And a ghostwriter is basically hiring another writer to convert your your ideas, your prepared materials into a final finished version. And ghostwriters can be quite expensive because basically you're hiring someone to do the work of writing. Well, at the same time, they are agreeing to be invisible because the work will be published with your name on it. And so that's a that's a different type of it moves past editing into writing at that point yeah that's a whole different beast 
that's a whole different piece. <laughs> Going back to that very first category and the very first example that you gave is that uh, that person who gets it, reads it and says yes or no, that we're going to do something with this. Now, how often would you say that they get through the whole manuscript or do they just read, uh, you know, and, and the first four or five poems or first chapter or whatever and go, yeah, no, I, and they can tell where it's going. Is that accurate or do they actually take the time, do you think? There are a number of factors that, that affect that. If it is a very large or very well-known press, they most likely, the, the editor is not the person that's doing the initial reading. They will have interns or junior members of staff or some outside writers, perhaps people they've previously published, do the initial pre-reading through all the different manuscripts and identify likely candidates that might move on to the next stage. And so that that sort of preliminary reader is going to make a call about like, this definitely feels like it needs to go up a, a level for someone else to make a decision on, or this is something that doesn't feel ready or doesn't feel like a fit for what this press publishes. So there's that. When it gets to the editor, what what how much do they actually read of the submission that comes in? And the not so dirty secret, I think most people, it's not really a secret these days, is that editors are just limited on time. So they will frequently read, you have to make a positive, strong impression within the first few pages of any submission that you make. And for poetry, and this sounds awful, but usually within the first three lines, a person knows whether or not they're going to finish reading the rest of the, the manuscript. If, if it's fiction or prose, they're going to basically give it, you know, two or three pages. If by the end of the first page, they're not hooked and certain that there's something that's worth investigating, the next few pages will be tough for them to get through. But if they're interested, they'll press on. They might read the whole chapter. But usually, you know, if it's not, if you're not hooked, if you're not solidly convinced that there's something worth pursuing here, you most likely are going to put it aside after about a paragraph or after about a stanza or two of a poem. Okay, so that person who's got your piece of work in their hands, if they're having a bad day, does that <laughs> generally affect how they respond to what you've read? Because if they're having a bad day and this reminds them of something that's happening that's you know made their day bad, can they be objective or are they subjective or... Or I can't I can't speak for everyone, but I will say that anyone that tells tells you that they are objective in those situations is lying to you because I, I actually frequently tell new editors this, you should only be reading submissions when you're in a relatively neutral emotional state. If there is something else going on in your life that has made you frustrated, angry, or just that you're hungry and frustrated by the fact that you're sitting here reading submissions instead of getting yourself a meal, all those things impact your psychological and emotional state when you're evaluating submissions. If you're depressed because, you know, employment has gone south recently and suddenly you're struggling to make ends meet financially, clearly you're not going to be fully in game to actually read and evaluate people's work in a positive manner. But that being said, 
there's never a perfect time for an editor to read your manuscript. There's always going to be something in the background. So realize that when you get a rejection, there may be factors that are completely out of your control that have nothing to do with the quality of your manuscript and have everything to do with some weird combination of things happening in that editor's life. Yeah. You know, things like they have just read five manuscripts about a character and their dog and your manuscript arrives and it's also about a main character and his or her their dog and that editor may say i am tired of reading stories about characters and their dogs no <laughs> it's like and it doesn't even get a fair chance it's just like it could be could be john wick right but it's a character and his dog and already they've decided not to read it. Exactly. And so it gets tossed. And and so you, there's silly, stupid reasons why things don't get read. Just don't take it personally. Just just realize that they're human beings. They're They're going to make some mistakes. And sometimes your character's name matches the name of their ex that they have a deep, deep burning frustration with. And they just can't connect with the character they're supposed to connect with. And yeah, yeah. It's just like just silly things like that. So as the receiver of a, of a rejection letter, we can't perceive exactly why. I mean, we get this nice little cute, uh, you know, letter saying, oh, thank you for trying and blah, blah, blah. But there's probably something more going on behind. Would that be yes. safe? That's safe to say. The The other thing I will note is that some editors have felt burned any time that they've offered more specific feedback. And so there have been times where I've offered more specific feedback and I'll get an angry email back from someone saying, how dare you critique my work? And I think, well, I mean, you offered to it, offered me it for there. submission to consider it. And there is the idea that maybe if I had some helpful feedback that you would want to hear it. And after being burned a few times, you get a little gun shy and you say, well, does this feel like a person that would take any criticism or feedback or should I just play it safe and not say it? Or I'm just overwhelmed. I've got like 500 other submissions to get through. I don't have time to write a detailed feedback for every single person that comes through. And so when you do get a rejection letter, but it does include some specific feedback about a particular piece in your submission or about the submission on the whole, you actually should look at that as a positive sign because someone has taken extra time to make a comment. You might disagree with the comment, but it is still a positive sign that they cared enough to write something. Yeah. Excellent. That's uh that's a, that's enlightening. Yeah. Next question. So as someone who has written the next best great seller, whatever, speaking as an editor, you, what should, uh, I'll use myself as an example, what should I be looking for in my editor? And is this an editor you're hiring or is this an editor in terms of you're sending it out there for consideration? I'm hiring. Okay. If you want to hire someone to help you with what, what you hope to be the next big bestseller, you're looking for an editor that's transparent about their rates. Okay. I think it's really important that you have a clear conversation about money up front and not have some surprise sprung on you at the end where they say, well, I'm also billing you for those additional hours that I spent reading your manuscript that I didn't tell you I was 
taking and for the trip I took to to Calabasas or to to Tijuana to read it because I need to be in the sun when I'm reading manuscripts, right? And so you don't want hidden costs, right? <laughs> So just a transparency of what exactly you're hiring them to do and a contract. It's really helpful. Most of the time with my clients, I have a prepared contract that, you know, specifies exactly what I'm offering them. And, you know, in in my case, it's going to be I'm offering them a letter, you know, because most of the work I do is developmental work. I'll offer them a letter of usually somewhere between two to three pages in length that details macro, big level issues and concerns and, and patterns that I'm seeing, as well as more specific drilled down individual cases. You all know, have a list of specific things that could be fixed within a particular scene or a particular conversation. And then I will also have like reading recommendations in terms of I, I see that this book is in this type of a market. Here's a couple other books that are doing similar things to what you're trying to do or use a similar type of storytelling technique that might be helpful to refer to. So you have an idea of like, these are different models that are working. This is what you're doing right now. What can you learn from what they're doing? And if you want, how do you adjust that? And I try to provide like a combination of critical comments that that help them think about things that could be changed as well as potential solutions. A good editor does not insist that their solution is the only solution for whatever problems exist within your manuscript. A good editor is offering you insight into the potential problems and why they are present and then providing you with some possible solutions while always acknowledging that the the final decision lies with you as the author. So that's the type of relationship you want with your editor. And a good editor is going to be flexible where where possible. So like if you have particular needs or accommodations that need to be met, a good editor is going to ask, are there any specific things that you want to aid you on this? Would it help if I make a video recording of myself walking through the manuscript and talking about the specific things as opposed to having a written document? And some people prefer that. And usually I provide both the written letter and also a, you know, a 90-minute, you know, Zoom conversation about the same thing. Because oftentimes in the course of the conversation, I realize that something I thought I understood in the manuscript, I had misunderstood. So my commentary and suggestions might not make any sense. And so now we need to recalibrate on the fly and address those issues in that moment. And so that conversation is hugely helpful, I think, for most people. So I'd say those are the type of things that I would recommend using myself as a as not a perfect model, but just this is what I've gleaned over the years from studying other people and trying to to put best practices into into place. No, that's fair enough. Thank you for that. As an editor, okay, when I wrote this question, it sounded good. It it <laughs> it may not, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway. And it, it, if it's like we can just ignore it afterwards. So as an editor, do you pay attention to the content uh, in brackets, meaning the story, or does this matter to the editing? And the second part of that is, do you read the manuscript first before settling in on the task of editing? I I think this is a good question, actually. I think I think there is, uh, some people will be so fixated on the copy editing proof 
reading side of things that they will make all the corrections for for it to be grammatically correct and it still not be a good story okay right so when you say you know what do what should editors do i think it's if they privilege fixing this surface while never addressing the underlying problems that's not really good editing that that might be good proofreading it's just not good editing Good editing gets to the heart of what's going on in the story, which often means I'm reading things not once, but twice, three times, maybe even four times. And uh, I might sit with it for a while to figure out what to do next. So usually I read it through once and make some margin notes as I go of things that immediately jump out as being potentially problematic or that there's something I really like, something that strikes me in this moment, or this phrase I think is particularly good. This other phrase doesn't seem to live up to the standards that you've established elsewhere in the manuscript. And so I'll make those little notes here and there, and then I'll stop. And then I'll look back over everything I've written and all the margin notes and everything about the story or the the collection. And I'll say, what are the patterns that I'm seeing here? Is there a recurring problem that, that comes out of this? Is there a character that feels I'm just not getting enough information about, or their behavior is, is uh, inconsistent or, or their dialogue never seems always sounds a bit flat in comparison with these other characters. And if I start to see those broader issues, that's where I'm starting to work on my letter to address those bigger issues and say like, okay, here's, here's a bigger problem that needs to, to be addressed. And that's in the content. It's not on the surface. So yeah, it's true. Frequently, I won't circle and mark every single last surface level error because I don't feel like that's where the value is. I think the value is invested in addressing the content and the architecture of the piece, and secondarily coming back to the question of fixing the surface level stuff. I wrote a memoir, and I sent it off to a professional editor out Victoria Way, and she says, well, what what do you want me to do? I said, well, this is all the money I have. Do what you can to help me. And and she she took my piece and I mean, she sent it back to me and there's like over over 150 notations on the side saying, what about this? What about that? What about that? And she was very, very helpful. And so I, I think if a, an editor can invest themselves into what you're trying to do, as well as improve what you're trying to do, that's a good investment in an editor, right? Oh, I'd say that's an excellent way to put it. It's like the the role of the editor is to help you and the project cross the finish line. It's it's to catch a vision for what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Now, on some occasions, an editor will see something that you might be too close to the text to see. So like you might be thinking, I'm writing this story, you know, and it's all about firefighting. And it's all about this crew crew of firefighters in this really difficult situation. But over the course of the story, the editor might realize it's like, well, a lot of this is actually about father and son relationships. The firefighting is almost incidental to this. So it seems like really what's happening here is a is an interrogation of perhaps what is masculinity, what is passed on from a father to a son, what what things feel like they're withheld or, or misunderstood between generations. And that, that might be actually what the story's about 
and firefighting is just the situation in which the story's been cast in. Good editor might help you see that. They'll, they'll ask a question. Is this really what it's about? I'm kind of feeling like you're going this direction with these relationships. And I feel like what you're pointing at, or at least the story is getting at, is more along this line. So sometimes you'll you'll have that type of thing. But I do think like what that editor did is key is ask good questions. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. A good editor is not simply giving you prepackaged answers. They're also, I mean, hopefully what they're giving you is good questions that prompt you to look deeper into your own writing, to challenge yourself to go a little further, to maybe question your own assumptions about what was going on in that scene or in that in that poem and and to then grow a little bit a good relationship with an editor is going to help you become a better writer and help the text become a better you know manuscript yeah i i would say uh she was everything that you just said and um and like i said it, it helped my story and and now i'm at the point where well do i really want to go ahead with this because this is (laughs) anyway when editing can you actually tell or can you get a feeling that the manuscript you're editing will be a success? Sometimes. I, I, I think I can't say like, I'm not a manuscript whisperer that like, I look at the manuscript. It's like, I can feel job? it. I know, <laughs> I know that this is, this is going to be the one. But I definitely say that like, there is a point when you're working with a manuscript that some manuscripts you will just recognize and say like, there is something really unique and special about the way this person writes and the type of story that they're writing. And I feel that this manuscript is going to do well if it could just get to the right publisher, right? <laughs> or the right agent finds it and is really a champion of it. And I've definitely worked on a number of manuscripts that were like that. And some of them did, you know, a person came to me and said, like, I've been a finalist several times with this manuscript for for poetry competitions, for book publishing competitions in the States. It's like, I feel like it's close, but I can't figure out what's wrong with this manuscript. And so I kind of took the whole thing apart. I restructured it. I dropped some pieces. I pointed out some connections with pieces that she hadn't thought about before and I proposed a different title. I said, well, have you thought about maybe a title that works more like this, that plays off of some of the poems that are doing this? And she like loved the new proposed title. She liked the new structure. She added a few other poems afterwards, sent it out, and it won. It won a poetry competition that year and got published right away. And it was like, huzzah. And I would say like, I mean, that's her, that's her work, right? That's what, that's her, it's on her for writing a great book. But I definitely had a moment when I was working on the manuscript where I felt like this book is done. The manuscript is done. It's good. It's solid. And the right person's going to see this and recognize it. I, and I told her, since I don't know if it will be this year or the next year or the year after, but someone's going to publish this. There is definitely a publisher for this. There are other books I've worked on where I believe strongly in the writing and in the content, but there's something about the story that's so niche, so specialized, that I'm worried that it might not find the right editor or find the right agent or the right publisher. And I'm not certain what the outcome is going to be. I feel like it's a really important book, but I can't guarantee that it's going to get published. That makes total sense. What are some common mistakes writers make when they submit a manuscript for editing? 
Okay, my number one pet peeve is a manuscript that comes in without page numbers. There's nothing more aggravating than than getting a manuscript with no page numbers. And I've I haven't noticed that, and I've printed out the entire manuscript and now have to spend time either hand numbering every single page so that I can then refer to the correct page when I'm giving my notes back to the person, or I have to reprint out the entire manuscript with page numbers that I've had to add in, which I can't guarantee will be consistent with, with the page numbering on the other person's side. So yes, make certain you have page numbers. It will save so much time on the editor's side to be able to to know that the page they're referring to is the same page that you're looking at. <laughs> and it's it's just much better shorthand. So I would say, yeah, page numbers, it seems like it's such a small thing, but it's like such a huge thing sometimes. So that's pretty much um, a standard given though that writers and authors should do. Yeah, they should do that. When formatting your manuscript, the basic things you should have is choose a standard font, you know, whether you're looking at Times New Roman or, you know, Times New Roman or Arial Courier or something standard. But I think Times New Roman, as boring as it is, is a standard font that that most people are comfortable with. 12 point, just like don't make it super big, don't make it super small, stick with the 12 point. Choose standard margin sizes, which are roughly like around an inch around perfectly fine don't like try to max out the spacing so that you have like 0.5 margins around it just it just looks ugly if someone wants to hole punch the thing it's going to put holes right through your text it just not good and so yeah so standard margins page numbers yeah i think i think those are very simple foundational things to work with and then beyond that i think if you can deliver it as a I would say if you can give two versions of the manuscript, one as a Word doc and one as a PDF. And the reason why I think having two versions, having the PDF version as well, is just that every so often something, there will be some question and you you would like to be able to be certain you're referring to exactly the same place on the same page. And the PDF means that it's standard between the two of you. With the Word doc, if someone is opening it up in, let's say, LibreOffice or OpenOffice, they might get a slight page shift. And so like the bottom of the page might move slightly, which causes a ripple effect across, across all the different pages. And then you'll gradually end up being about a page off between the two people. And that can be confusing. So yeah, it's not a huge issue, but the longer the document, the more likely it is to be slight discrepancies between them if they're not all using the same Microsoft Office version, mm-hmm. right? So I think there's that. Uh, I think what else would be really good? Uh, standard mistakes. I think if you have a novel, it is helpful to include a synopsis or or a plot summary, just like a a, a brief, like, paragraph or a couple pages that that summarizes the entire novel it's just like it's the type of thing that just helps the the editor quickly assess where they're looking like how you understand the story and how it might be summarized versus how it's actually told Mm -hmm. right 
And then you could also have a shorthand too to know like how far into the manuscript should I be going when I'm looking for this particular scene that I remember reading, but now I can't remember where, which part of the story it was in because I forgot to stick a post-it note there or whatever it was. And I'm trying to think what else is really helpful on, on this. Yeah, I, I, I don't think like the editor doesn't need a, a, a complex backstory around why you're writing this thing. And an editor is not your therapist. So you don't need to unload on them about the emotional, psychological, social you know, traumas that have been experienced that led up to the production of the, of the book. Because, I mean, we can't address those things. We're legally not authorized to step into that. That's not a hat we're allowed to wear. Yeah, and that's, so that's, that's actually that's... a disclaimer in my, in my uh, contract that says like, I am not a therapist. I'm not, um, I'm not a, I'm not a relationship counselor. You know, it's like my, my advice and counsel is specific to the task of writing, That's understanding, <laughs> understanding that, you know, the nature of creative writing is that we will write about our personal lives and we will likely lean on those experiences and unconsciously be drawing on those things. But I'm not. Yeah, you can't turn to me as a counselor to solve something else outside of the text. So you're not obligated to unload all that information to me. And I will be professional if I ask questions about those things. And I will not prod and probe into things that you are not comfortable addressing. So, and some people will be forthright and they'll simply say, yeah, this is coming from a particularly dark period in my life you know, when I was recovering after sexual violence or something like that. And you're like, okay, well, yeah. I mean, in a sense, I need to know that, but they're also not obligated to go into any great details. And if if it's a subject matter for what they're writing about, then we'll just leave that for the text to do that work. And they don't need to have a, a, a personal conversation with me about reliving their trauma, like in that conversation. So I, I'm not I'm not there to push on that. And so they don't need to feel obligated to dump emotionally all these different things on the editor. Uh, they should also not preface when they submitted something for editing, do not preface how you know that this is going to be a bestseller or that anyone in their right mind or whatever other ableist <laughs> thing you could say. <laughs> it's like, just everyone should recognize this as being an incredible work of genius, not helpful at all. Uh, <laughs> so, and any sort of patronizing speech about like, uh, about like how, how I'm paying you to do this. So I expect, you know, <laughs> uh, expect that you're going to love it. Yeah. It's, it's like, no, you're, you're hiring someone to do you with service. I mean, there is, there is a limit to what you could expect out of that transaction. You're not hiring us to write a review for you. Yeah. You're not hiring us to, to sing your praises. A good editor is going to be candid and frank, hopefully compassionate and supportive as well, but will not pull punches in terms of if there are ser serious issues. Like if you, you come to me and you say, I've written a collection of poetry written from the point of view of different serial killers over the years about what they've done to their victims. I'm wondering if you think this is publishable. I will tell you it's not publishable. <laughs> I will and say for, it is a really, reason. really, 
yeah, for, for these reasons, because it is a really poor taste, because it's exploitative, because you have no skin in the game in this. So it's definitely, you know, what is this? Is this voyeuristic? Is it pornographic in nature? What What is driving you to write this? There's all sorts of reasons why this is extremely questionable and unethical behavior. So I would stay away from this. That would be my vote. Brilliant. So. <laughs> I have an idea how you might answer the, this next question and, right. and general idea uh, as to why. Uh, here's the question anyway. Would you recommend everyone seek out an editor for their manuscript and why? So would I recommend everyone seek out an editor? I think that um, I don't know if everyone needs to seek out a professional paid editor for their work, but I do think that seeking out trustworthy third parties, someone else who is not, not you to look at the work, who, whose judgment when it comes to writing and a knowledge of the field, like of whatever your genre is that you're trying to publish in. If you can find a handful of people that you trust as your alpha or beta readers to give you some initial feedback, that helps. If you have a friend who is a skilled editor that volunteers their services, as opposed to requiring you to pay, that's also great. You know, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that happens. If you take advantage of things like um, a lot of public libraries and communities have uh, writers in residence. I currently serve as the Regina Public Library's writer in residence right now. Oh. And as part of that program, I work with members of the public who come to me for no charge. They can meet with me up to an hour each week to talk about, and I, I offer them feedback and specific editing feedback on work that they're doing up to about 20, 25 pages at a time. And that's free. It doesn't cost them anything. I'm being paid by the library to do this. And so they can take advantage of that and it doesn't cost them anything. And so there are ways to get a hold of an editor without necessarily having to expend a lot of money. But I do think like seeking outside perspectives on the work, especially from people who you're not related to, so they don't feel obligated to say something nice. Yeah. right can be helpful so pay for an editor if you feel like you've exhausted your other options or you're no longer getting feedback that helps you move the manuscript to the next level mm -hmm. if you're still feeling like i feel i'm stuck or i feel like this is like 80 percent there but i can't figure out how to get the next 20 percent done then talk to an editor if you feel like this is like a hundred percent done, but I've been sending it out and I still have got no traction, no one is interested in looking at this, then maybe it's time to talk to an editor to see if you can get some someone's professional opinion about maybe uh, how marketable the idea is, or if the way that you're presenting it in terms of your cover letters and accompanying materials is doing the work you think it's doing, or if you're inadvertently sabotaging yourself when you do that. This concludes part one of a two-part interview I did with Neil Aitken about his role as an editor. Come back in two weeks' time to hear the conclusion of this interview and other information about Neil. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Between the Lines. In future episodes, I will not only be speaking with Canadian authors and writers, I will also be speaking with those from the other side of the writing industry, editors, agents, and publishers, in the hopes of getting a better understanding of how it all works together. 
If you liked what you heard, hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and content. Send all your comments, suggestions, or any questions you'd like to have a guest answer to me at randy.dtlpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to visit me at www.therandylacy.ca. While there, look for the Buy Me a Coffee button to help support the podcast. Thank you for your time and your ears. Tune in, be inspired, and write on. In business, you rarely hear the expression, for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.